You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. If you look on your screen, you will see a picture of Nick Walinda. He is tightrope walking, actually called funambulism. I call it stupid, but whatever. Nick was tightrope walking across Niagara Falls. This is a picture from 2012. He is 200 feet up, about an equivalent of a 20-story building, and he is tightrope walking over Horseshoe Falls. In his hands, you see there, he has a balancing pole. Uh, what I'd have in my hands is a lot of sweat, but he has a, a balancing pole, and that particular balancing pole is, is, weighs 43 pounds. But that pole is imperative to steady him on the way across. These past few weeks, we have been looking at a lot of things from God's word that serve for us as a, as a balancing pole. They, they steady us in difficult times. Over the past several weeks, we have been looking at God's word for his truths and his gifts, his, his blessings to us that we might live a life of steady faith even during turbulent times. We'll continue this morning to talk through some things that God has given us through his word, through his spirit, that might give us a steady faith, again, during times of, of difficulty. This morning, let's, let's talk about this steadying thing. It is trading out disbelief for belief. Uh, trading out a, a, a lack of faith or a doubt for a true, abiding, deep faith in God. What I'm talking about today is, is trading our doubts that God might be limited or he might be vulnerable or he might be incapable of doing all things and trading that for instead a belief in a God who is unlimited, a God who is invincible, a God who is capable of doing all things. Let's begin with, with this statement today. As your belief grows deeper and more expressed, then your faith grows steadier and more alive. As your belief grows deeper, as it, as it grows more genuine, and as your faith and belief grows more exercised or more expressed, then your faith begins to grow steadier. It begins to become more consistent, and your faith begins to become more alive. It's, it's more seen. It's more, it's more evident. It's more active in you. So let me say it again. As your belief grows deeper and more expressed, then your faith grows steadier and more alive. Would you turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Mark this morning? Uh, it's the second uh, book in the New Testament, the second Gospel, Matthew, Mark. And let's go to Mark chapter 9 together. And I would encourage you, even ask you this morning, uh, to turn to this passage with me. We'll be in this passage the remainder of the morning uh, for the totality of the sermon. So I encourage you to open up God's Word and let's go to God's Word together. It's in Mark chapter 9. Let's begin in verse 14. It's an incredible story, and I do not want you to miss this today. Mark chapter 9. Let's begin in verse 14 together. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and they ran up to him and greeted him. Let's get a little context here because anytime you read God's word, biblical context is so important to understand a passage. Uh, we see here in verse 14, twice a reference to they. 
the they's here are Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And they have just returned, if you want your eyes to kind of glance back up into your Bible, they have just returned from the Mount of Transfiguration uh, in verses 2 through through verse 13. And there's a lot of things that they learned on top of the Mount of Transfiguration as those three disciples were up there with Jesus. One of the main things that they learned is that Jesus is not just a teacher to be followed. He is the Lord of all and he is to be worshiped. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus takes away all the middle ground. If you say Jesus is just a good teacher, listen to what he taught. Jesus teaches that he is God, that he is the Lord over all. So Jesus is either nothing or Jesus is everything. And on top of the Mount of Transfiguration, those three disciples knew then and now know forever that Jesus is everything. And so those three disciples and Jesus come down the mountain and they see the other probably nine disciples. Look what it says in verse 14. And people were gathered around those disciples. And surprise, surprise, the the scribes were arguing with those disciples. Verse 15, the crowd sees Jesus and runs to him. When they run to him, look, look how the ESV describes this. They were greatly amazed. Now, why was the crowd greatly amazed at this point, at least in this short narrative, Jesus has done nothing but walk onto the crowd? Perhaps they were hearing the stories of this Jesus who in previous chapters, who had already begun some incredible miracles, incredible display of his power. But maybe they were amazed because of the afterglow of the radiance of God's glory on Jesus. This is not on your screen this morning, but it is in your Bible. Go back to verse three and look what it says. It says, in his clothes, the clothes of Jesus became radiant. They were intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. So maybe Jesus was still glowing with the radiance of the glory of God as he approached that crowd. Maybe that's why the people ran to him and they were greatly amazed. And look at verse 16. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? I love that Jesus asks this question because he already knows the answer. He is the Lord over all. And he comes and he's like, what, what are you arguing about? He knows the answer. And Jesus is going to do the same thing a little bit later on in the story in verse 21 when he asks a question of which he already knows the answer. Why would Jesus ask a question that he already knew the answer to? Well, simply, I think it is this. He's drawing people into his story. And he's meeting people where they are. He is trying to draw out of people their, their fears, their concerns, their, their arguments. And so he asked that question. And isn't this reality? Right when you come down off an amazing spiritual experience, aren't there always arguments and disagreements and distractions and everybody, other, everybody's issues, other issues are, are firing on all cylinders? This is what's happening to Peter, James, and John. And, and even Jesus, he comes down off this mountain, an incredible time with, with the Lord. In fact, he has come down quite literally off this mountaintop experience. This is probably where we get the phrase, a mountaintop experience. And immediately... He is met with arguing and distractions and other people's issues. Look at verse 17. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. 
So out of the crowd, out of this arguing crowd, comes the clear voice of a hurting father. It says here that a demon prevented his son from talking. That that demon was seizing him and, and throwing him to the ground. And the disciples could not do anything about it. And Jesus is about to unload. Not in anger. I think it was more in sorrow. Sorrow that his closest followers, his own disciples, were living in disbelief. Jesus does not hold back. Look at Mark chapter 9, verse 19. And Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. When you match up this story in the account of Mark to the same story in the account of Matthew, we see that Jesus was speaking directly to his disciples when he called them a faithless generation. How long do I have to bear with your faithlessness? How long am I going to be here and be around your disbelief and your lack of faith? I mean, Jesus is very passionate about those two questions that he asked right there. And if these questions kind of step on your toes today, just, just know there's no one else in the universe who has more of a right to call out our faithlessness than Jesus himself. He looks to his friends, he looks to his fathers, his own disciples, and he says, why are you such a faithless group? We want Jesus to do this. We want Jesus to call out our faithlessness. We want Jesus to call us out when we're not fully trusting in him, fully believing in him. Would you rather live a life of disbelief or half-belief as a Christ follower, or would you rather live the life that God fully has for you? life of faith, a life of trust, a life of belief. So here Jesus is calling out the faithlessness of his own followers. But then do not miss the compassion and the tenderness of these next few words. In fact, they become even more tender in juxtaposition to the two pretty harsh questions that Jesus asked. Look what he says here, bring him to me. Bring that boy to me. Three things are about to happen. Jesus is about to do something that no one else can do. Secondly, Jesus is about to stir the belief and steady the faith of people who are around him. And thirdly, Jesus and Jesus alone is about to get the credit for an incredible miracle. Look back in your passage, Mark chapter nine, verse verse 20. They brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, this evil spirit saw Jesus, immediately that spirit convulsed the boy and the boy fell on the ground and rolled around and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, even though he knew the answer to this question, Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? Jesus is setting this up for an incredible demonstration of his power, of his godness, of his ability. How long has this been happening to your boy? And the father said from childhood, since he was a, just a, a young, young child. And often the spirit has cast my son into fire and into water to destroy him, the ultimate plan of the enemy to destroy him. But if, he says to Jesus, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Do you see the half disbelief And the half belief in that statement, it's not total disbelief, but it's also not total belief. In disbelief, he says here in verse 22, if you can. But then in belief, also verse 22, he says, 
Would you have compassion? He believes that Jesus is, is one filled with compassion. And, and if you can help, he believes that Jesus at a minimum can, can help. It's probably where a lot of us are today. We fully believe that Jesus is compassionate. We fully believe that Jesus can help. But do we truly believe that Jesus can do all things? And Jesus picks up on this. Verse 23. And Jesus said to him, if you can, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I don't know about you, but this is the part of the movie where I start tearing up. And this is also the part of the story that gets very awkward. We don't see it very easily in our English translation, but, but in the Greek, the original translation, the original language, I want you to understand when this father cried out, it's the Greek word krodzo. It was not the father politely handing his, his son over to Jesus with, with little noise or little disruption. The word krodzo means to shriek. It means to scream out. It's the Greek word used to describe the noise of a raven or a crow. It it is calling out, crying out, shouting out while you're sobbing. This was an awkward moment when this, this father cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. Verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit. Why was the crowd running together? I think it's very clear they were drawn in by the shouting, the sobbing, the screaming, the shrieking of this father crying out, I believe, help my unbelief. And a crowd came running. Now, Jesus doesn't always draw a crowd for a miracle. His MO, not always in the New Testament and the Gospels, was to get the biggest crowd possible so that the most people can see a demonstration of his public power. This is not on your screen, but if you don't mind, just go two pages back in your Bible, maybe just a page and a half back in your Bible, and go to to Mark chapter 7, verse 33. This is the story of of Jesus healing. And we see in in, in Mark chapter 7, verse, verse 33, this is the healing of the deaf man. Look what it says in verse 33, and taking him aside from the crowd privately. This was not a spectacle. This was not a showmanship of Jesus and in, in, in the healing of the deaf man. He pulled the deaf man aside from the crowd and privately healed him. Kind of the same thing happens just one page over in chapter 8. Uh, look at verse 23. We see here how Jesus heals a blind man at Bethsaida. And it says in verse 23 that he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. So it's not always that Jesus wants to see the crowd running. But here, because this man is screaming out, since he is shouting out for belief and asking God, asking Christ to to help him with his unbelief, we see an incredible public demonstration of the power of God in Jesus. Let's go back to our passage. Verse 25, and when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute 
and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus, Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when Jesus had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Trading disbelief for belief. This will steady us as followers of Christ, trading out our disbelief for belief. So let me say the statement again I said at the very beginning of the sermon. As your belief grows deeper and more expressed, your faith grows steadier and more alive. As your belief grows deeper, more expressed, more exercised, your faith will become more consistent. It will become steadier. It will be more alive, more seen, more more evident, more active. So how then do we trade disbelief for belief? What does it look like trading disbelief that we struggle with for belief that is certain that God can do all things? Let's look at four things together this morning from this passage to learn how we today, this week, we also can trade disbelief for belief. Here's the first thing, by talking to God. Now, I know that sounds so elementary, so basic, but the disciples did not do it. Did you see that in the very last verse of this narrative in verse 29, Jesus comes back and the disciples are going, how come we could not cast out that, that demon? And Jesus goes, oh, that demon only comes out when you pray. How arrogant to the disciples to try to cast out a demon without talking to God. How clueless they were that they were inadequate. They did not have strength to do this on their own but instead needed to be talking to God, praying to the Father. Really, only one character in this entire story outside of Jesus expresses a need to talk to God. And it was not the disciples, nor was it the scribes. It was the father of this boy. You trade for belief. You trade disbelief for belief by talking to God because you will never, ever put your full trust, your full faith in someone you do not know. So we press into knowing the Father. We talk to him, something the disciples missed out on. We trade disbelief or belief by talking to God. Second thing, by acknowledging that you struggle with disbelief. That is actually a pretty good place to start in trading disbelief or belief and acknowledging if you do, and I assume so many of us, maybe all of us at some point or another, we struggle with a lack of belief. We struggle with disbelief. And it was not this father's holiness that that accessed the power of Jesus. It was his helplessness. It wasn't the perfection of this father, the boy, that that got him into an entrance into the, 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 the demonstrated power of God in Christ. It was the fact that he could not. He was helpless. This had been his boy who had experienced this since he was a young child. Jesus, look what it says in verse 23. Verse 23, Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. In essence, I don't think I'm taking this out of context. In essence here, Jesus says, I can if you believe. And immediately the father says, I'm riddled with doubts. 
I'm not 100% there. I, I want to be there. Jesus, would you help me in my unbelief? What a great place to be. Jesus, would you give me the grace to believe? This might be the most simple, most pragmatic thing you can take from this sermon today. It's a simple prayer. Jesus, would you give me the grace to believe? I believe, but would you help my unbelief? What a simple prayer you can pray right now, simple prayer you can pray this afternoon, a simple prayer you can pray this week, that you acknowledge that there are times in your life that you struggle with disbelief. Oh God, would you give me the grace to believe? Third thing, trading disbelief for belief by bringing Jesus your most treasured things. By bringing Jesus your most treasured things, you will never grow in belief. If all you're handing to Jesus is the under-treasured things in your life. I'm not asking you if you trust the Father with small things. I'm asking, do you trust him with the big things in your life, the significant things in your life, the valuable things in your life, the things that you most treasure in your life? Are you willing to give those things to Christ and believe to bring him your most treasured things? You will never trade disbelief for belief until you're willing to lay before Jesus the things that you love the most. Look at this in the story in verse 20. And, and, and hear this. If you can, place yourself in this story, someone in the crowd, and listen to the cries of a father. Verse 20, and they brought the boy to him, to Jesus, and when that spirit, that evil spirit saw Jesus, immediately that spirit begins to convulse the boy, and the boy falls on the ground, and this young boy rolling about, and he's foaming at the mouth, and Jesus asks his father, how long has this been happening to him? And this father, certainly in great grief and agony, watching this happen publicly to his young son, says, since he was a baby, since he was a boy from childhood, and often it has cast my son into the fire, often that spirit has cast my son into water, that spirit does to destroy, to destroy my son. But if you can do anything, would you have compassion on us and help us? This father was laying his treasure, his son, before Jesus. One of the most valuable things in this father's life. And in belief, even half belief at this point, he lays this treasure before Christ. Here's the fourth thing I want you to see from this passage, trading disbelief for belief. You do that by recalling his faithfulness and waiting for his present work. You remember the past, how faithful, how good, how generous God has been. And then you wait. I know that's the least favorite word of an American. You wait. You wait for God to do his present work. There's something happening here in verse 25 and verse 26. You're a sharp congregation, a sharp church. You probably caught it. It took me a long time to catch these, these two things here in this passage. But would you please see this with me? Begin in verse 25 with me again. And so when Jesus saw that a crowd was running together, he rebuked that unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, you come out of him and you never enter him again. And after the spirit, evil spirit, crying out and convulsing the boy terribly, that spirit came out and the boy, listen to this, was like a corpse. So the most people there were saying, he's dead. You've 
you've killed this boy. He, he was mute. And it seems to get worse. Now he seems to be dead. You know who wasn't worried in this story? Peter, James, and John. They had just seen Jesus lit up with the glory of God. They're not wringing their hands. They're not sweating. They're recalling what they had just seen, the power of the glory of God falling upon Jesus and the Father declaring out loud, this is my son. So Peter, James, and John, even though things seemed to get worse, to move from mute to dead, they were recalling the faithfulness of God. They were recalling the power of Jesus. They knew this Jesus. They knew what he was capable of doing. I think some Christians, we, we struggle with this. We don't see God doing something right now in our lives. This very moment, this very day, this very hour, and we do not see God doing something right now in our midst, right now for us, right now in us, we begin to slip into disbelief. I think sometimes we don't see what God is doing and, and things seem to even be growing worse in our lives. We fall back into faithlessness. If things aren't looking good or things aren't going our way, we slip back into what was said of these disciples. We become a faithless generation when we don't see God working right now. But you see, Christ was at work. It seemed as if this boy went from mute to dead. But God was working. Maybe not even at that very moment, the crowd cried out, he's dead, you've killed this boy. God was at work. We trade for belief by knowing that God is so good, so powerful, and so beyond time, and so beyond us, that we can rest in faith that he is working everything for our good and for his glory. You will trade that faithlessness, that disbelief for belief by knowing for certain that God is so good, he is so powerful, he is so beyond time, he is so beyond us, that we can rest in confidence, we can rest in courage, in faith, that this God is working everything for the good of his daughters, the good of his sons, and the glory of God. Oh God, would you give us that type of faith? Would you give us that type of belief that we would operate in that belief today and this week that by your grace, would you help our unbelief? Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for this story from Mark chapter nine where we are reminded that trading disbelief for belief begins just in a relationship with you, knowing you, pressing into you, talking with you. By acknowledging there are times in our lives, maybe many seasons in our lives, lives where we are faithless, we do not believe, we slip back into disbelief. That we have access to you, not because of how holy we are, but because we're helpless. We are nothing without Jesus. We can gain no access to the Father on our own. 
Give us the grace to help us in our unbelief. Father, would you help us to lay down before you our most treasured things, the things that we love the most. It'd be easy for us just to hand you the under-treasured things. We know our belief is growing. We know our faith is growing. Our faith is being made steady when we can lay before you the things that we count most precious to us. Father, by your grace, would you help us today recall your faithfulness, be reminded of your goodness, to recall your power, your generosity in days past, and to trust you for the present, even though things may not seem as we want them to be. Things might seem like they're slipping away. Things like may seem like they're not going our way. But God, we don't want to trust you just for the right now, this moment. We want to trust you for our lives, the entirety of our lives. Would you help us rest in faith? You're so good, so powerful, so beyond time, so beyond us that we can, in faith, trust you for everything. It's in Christ we pray.